So Rev Schoolmaker was uh, kind enough to ask me to be the uh, speaker today. Um, but first, a short uh, little bit of background, since I was not born as the executive director of Chappelle's Darche Noam. Uh, and I have what I think may be uh, a slightly unusual background. Um, I grew up, not Dati, but in a family that was very strongly Jewishly involved. Um, there I was, 17, 18 years old, in the middle of a ham meal. Not joking, but I figured that would get your attention. And I said to my parents, you know, I don't really feel like I can really eat this anymore. And they uh, said, what, are you becoming Orthodox? I said, no, 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 I'm going to be a Reformed rabbi. But, you know, I don't think it's... My parents are tremendously involved in the Jewish community. My dad was a past Jewish Federation president. So I always grew up with really the most important thing in my life was being Jewish and doing what I could for Am Yisrael, such that even though I was spent most of my junior and senior high school years as a uh, sports writer, at the time the youngest professional sports writer in the U.S., this was before the internet, so it was you know, more impressive than maybe, um, I said I was going to be a reform rabbi. And then I went to college and I learned a little bit more, and I thought I'd be a conservative rabbi. So I started at University of Judaism in L.A., for the rabbinate and for the master's degree, discovered that I was becoming more traditional, they were becoming less traditional. Longer story for a different time. Ended up at Yeshiva of LA for a year after I finished my master's degree, actually while finishing my master's degree, then ended up in Skokie Yeshiva. And in Skokie Yeshiva, I ended up getting smicha, I ended up meeting my wife, Baruch Hashem. Wanted to be a day school principal, did that for about 17 years uh, in Silicon Valley, in Cleveland, in Philadelphia. And then finally, nine years ago, as of last week actually, uh, after 40 years of dreaming about it, uh, we finally made Aliyah with my wife and, and uh, our five kids. So I want to talk today, which was really the what the schoolmaker asked about was a particular aspect of my continuing journey, which was the aspect of, of having a Rav and the importance at every stage along the way of having a Rav. And the case study is my rather unusual 28-year-old long relationship with my Rav, Rav Shlomo Avinir Shlita, who was the Nasi of Yeshivat Tater Yushalayim, He's now the retired Rav of Beitel. How this happened, why this relationship has been so important, and, and maybe what we can learn from it. So in Pirkei Avot, we're told, You should make for yourself a Rav. Now, why is this so important? Why do we have to have a Rav? So the first reason is the most obvious. As religious Jews, as Dati Jews, we want to properly observe the Halakha. We want to know what Hashem expects from us. And no matter how much we know, or no matter how much we think we know, we can't possibly know all that we need to know. So we need to have someone to ask who can tell us the halacha. But your rav is really far more than someone who knows the halacha. 
He's someone who knows how to apply the halacha in your particular situation, often balancing different obligations and different concerns. He's someone who you get help from to do Hashem's will in the broadest sense in your own life, and he's someone to help keep you balanced in your Avodat Hashem. So for me, how did this begin? Begin Shortly after we got married, my wife and I came to Israel for a two-week visit. At the time, I was still in Skokie Yeshiva. The first Shabbat, we stayed uh, in Israel. We were with students of what was then called the Tzert Kohanim, now a Tzert Yerushalayim, in what they call the Muslim Quarter. By the way, it's not really the Muslim Quarter, but like the rest of the old city was majority Jewish until the riots of the 30s, where then the British decided peace would come if they just threw us out of part of Yerushalayim. It didn't much help. Anyway, since the Six-Day War and afterwards, Jews have been resettling everywhere, and we wanted to go see what this was like. And we were really impressed with the Masirut Nefesh of the students who lived there, since uh, the neighbors weren't so uh, excited at sometimes about their presence. And we heard about the then Rosh Hashiva, Harav Aviner. And even then, he was one of the most uh, prominent and prolific rabbis in religious Zionism, not only as the Rosh Hashiva, but also as the Rav Beit El, an author... I bought some of the Sfarim and decided to learn them. And I was totally blown away by the depth, by the love of Am Yisrael, of Eretz Yisrael, of the sensitivity to others, also the ability to have a very clear hashkafa and having as part of the hashkafa love and respect for other people. So when we got back to the U.S., as various questions came up, I decided to fax him and see what would happen. And I always got a response. Uh, this were the day before he started getting hundreds of SMS questions every day where his answers were sometimes longer. And this relationship continued with phone calls and emails, learning his farim, faxes. And we continued this way for about 11 years until I actually got to meet him face to face. Now sometimes, Rav there has helped me with things that are not necessarily related to halakha or hashkafa. So, about 27 years ago, when my oldest daughter was four months, the pediatrician said it was time to sleep train her. Now, for those of you who are not parents yet, this means put your child in the crib, say goodnight, and let her resp- don't respond to the cries. Now, you can imagine, as first-time parents, uh, my wife and I were kind of nervous. So I said, let's fax for Robbie there. He responded with a two-page fax explaining why it was very important to listen to the doctor, but we should be sure every night to do a bedtime ritual with her, singing, telling her story, and then gently put her to sleep. And I was amazed that he took the time to respond to someone like this who we'd never met. Of course, most questions have been about Hashkafar Halakha. Before my oldest daughter was born, when I called him to Chicago with two questions. First question was that we were, when we were expecting our first child, and my wife was going to give birth in St. Francis Hospital, which is exactly what it sounds like. A Catholic hospital with, uh, you know, who hanging off the cross in every room. And I was sure the care would be very good, but the idea that the first thing my child would see would be that bothered me. So I asked him what to do. He said, cover it and take it down immediately when you walk in. I realized, by the way, he didn't get too many questions like that from students in Yerushalayim or families in Beitel. But I had another question. There's a well-known halacha. If one spouse wants to make aliyah and the other 
doesn't. The spouse who wants to may force the other spouse. And if they don't agree, there's, there could be a divorce. So I asked him what we would, should do if we found ourselves in this position. Now he told me that this is indeed the theoretical halakha, and it shows us the importance of living in Israel, but practically speaking, we don't tell couples to do this. Rather, they need to talk it through, come to an agreement, even if it takes time. A spouse should never force a spouse to do things. The Jewish family, love between husband and wife, are to be preserved. So this is the example of having a rab to tell you how to apply halachot when we have a variety of obligations that we have to consider. Now I mentioned about, as I'm about shuva of about almost 35 years. And this is particularly important, I find, for me, because maybe it's my personality, maybe it's being about you, maybe it's both, but sometimes it's a temptation to go to the extreme. We want so much to do what the halakha requires. We made this choice, but we don't always see how best to do this with the best possible outcome. So, for example, as a father, as a musmach, as a rabbi, I have a very clear idea of certain things I'd like my children to do and not to do. But how much should I be forcing? How much should I pressure? What happens when they're teenagers? What happens when they're married? How about dealing with non-observant family members? When is it wrong to be machmer? When is it wrong to even open up my mouth and say something? So a book can tell you what the black and white halakha is. But your Rav can tell you what you should do in the complicated real-life situations that we face. So he's been very helpful in, in helping me to be centered, not too extreme, to make sure that I don't go overboard even when my temptation is to do so. Having a Rav also has helped me in my professional life. Situations can be complex, especially if you have the merit to work in the Jewish community. When I was principal in Philadelphia, I heard that Rav Shmuel Eliyahu was going to be in the area, and I managed to get him to come to speak in our school. Rav Eliyahu was the chief rabbi at Sfat, very prominent member of the rabbinic community in Israel. But some well-connected parents heard about it and got upset. They thought Rav Eliyahu was just too right-wing, too controversial, and they tried to get the school principal to make me cancel. So now I was really worried. We know there's an obligation of kavod Torah and kavod tamidecha and it's absolutely forbidden to disgrace any tamid chacham. So would I have to give up my job if told to cancel rather than to cancel the chief rabbi of Tzfat? So I emailed him the question. He didn't email me. He called me. And he said, Ravaliyahu knows in America the rabbis are not in charge. It's the boards. If they force you to cancel, do it. Don't lose your job. So having a rav can help balance complex situations and completely competing obligations. Fortunately, by the way, I did not have to cancel. He came to the school and was amazing.
So now let's go even deeper. Sometimes in life we find ourselves where critical situations, really hard life decisions have to be made, and sometimes it's very confusing what's really going on here, and very often having a Rav to turn to is critical. So I want to share with you a, a difficult part that happened in, in my life. Baruch Hashem, my oldest daughter Leah, is now married, has two beautiful daughters, meaningful work as a social worker. But she was in ninth and 10th grade. We thought she was going to die. You see, it appeared that most days she could not eat, that her stomach didn't work properly, and she was losing more and more weight. And she was tested for all sorts of things. She was diagnosed with stomach disorder. She was given an, a gastric pacemaker. That cost the insurance company about a million dollars. She was tube-fed. Nothing worked. At the hospital, they gave her TPN, intervenous feeding through the veins. One night, the nurse caught her emptying the feeding line. We then started to realize what was going on. She didn't want to be fed. She didn't want to eat. She didn't want to gain weight. She wanted to be as thin as possible. Her and the disease had fooled everyone. The doctors told us she had an eating disorder and it had to be treated. Even though when we had her screened for eating disorders at an eating treating disorder center, they said, no, 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 it's not eating disorders. We didn't know at the time she had rocks in her pockets. Now my wife and I were not quite sure what to do, as you can imagine. Who to believe? What, 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 what do we do? So I wrote writing there who responded that we needed to talk and I should call. When I did, he told me gently but very clearly we needed to believe the doctors. We needed to help our daughter in any way possible. We needed to remember that the mental illness with the highest percentage of death are eating disorders. And over the coming months, he guided us, making sure when it became necessary to take us to an inpatient center, we would do so, even though it meant her being there for Yamim Noraim. Pikuach Nefesh was the overriding concern. Arab Yom Kippur, he called my daughter to tell her her avodah was to eat and drink. Now, did he tell me a lot that I didn't know? Not really. But when you're in the fog, when things aren't clear, when there's so much at stake, he gave, having a Rav who can give you the confidence to do what you need to do is critical. So we always say that he took part in saving my daughter's life. And Baruch Hashem, he was actually at her wedding, said a bracha and the chuppah. And we've continued to consult with him about life's challenges, including uh, with our youngest son, Yehudi Yonisim, for the last four and a half years. Some of you know, for the first five years of life, he was a typically developing child. And overnight, he'd change, become almost nonverbal, forgetting all he'd learned, and a tremendous behavior regression. And for the last four and a half years, he's lived life as a low-functioning autistic child. And we'll never really know if this was a result of wayward antibodies attacking his brain, some other medical trauma, late onset autism. We'll probably never know. And we've tried different medical interventions. Now, a few years ago, I asked him about trying a medical treatment that has some risk, 
due to lowering immunity and only a doubtful possibility of a reward of would it help and help enough so I asked him what do you do so he promptly quoted a psaac of the Tzferet Yisrael not in a, in a volume of shoot of responsa but in his commentary on Mishnah Yuma the Tzferet Yisrael wrote about one of the earliest vaccines the vaccine for smallpox and at the time, one out of a thousand people who took the vaccine died because of the vaccine. On the other hand, smallpox is deadly. But not everyone gets smallpox. So the question he had to deal with it's that Israel was, should you take the vaccine that had a risk, one in a thousand of dying, for the possible life-saving benefit? And the answer was yes. So Ravadiyar applied this in our son's case. Even though he's not in danger of losing his life, his quality of life has been very damaged, so you can take a slight risk to do something that doctors say may help. A fourth reason for having a Rav applies to married people. It's very important to have a Rav who both the husband and wife agree on to who they can ask questions. By the way, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be their parents' Rav. It has to be the Rav that they as a couple trust and are going to talk to. Now in a hopefully long marriage, there will be disagreements about what one should do. Some things may be comparatively small. Some things are uh, quite huge. And you need a neutral party you can count on. That's your Rav. That he can guide you to what is halakhically proper, hashkafically proper, Sometimes, simply, what's good sense? Fifth reason for being a, for having a rav is to be part of a misorah. Misorah, roughly translated, is a chain of sacred tradition. So, in other words, my rav is Rav Aviner. His rav was Rav Tzvi the cook. His rav was his father, Rav Avramitzah cook. His rav was in the of Velozhin. His Rav was Rav Chaim of Volozhin, whose Rav was the Vilna Gaon. You get the idea? A chain. Now there are different chains of Misorot in Torah Judaism. Sometimes they connect, sometimes they don't connect, but all of them are chains of Misorot that go back to Sinai. And these are the chains that keep Torah and Am Yisrael alive. When we have a Rav with a Misorah, we're part of that chain. It gives us grounding. It keeps us from doing things that, while perhaps not technically forbidden with a particular sif in Shulchan Aruch, may simply not be acceptable for people who have a Masorah. Chidush within tradition is great, but innovation to try to have the Torah conform with whatever the latest fad is in general society is not great. So it's very harmful. So having a Rav helps us maintain that balance. Sixth reason for having a Rav is to develop a Torah Hashkafa that balances all aspects of our service to Hashem and guides us in how to act. It's a complicated world and when we hyper-focus on one aspect, even a really important aspect of our religious lives, we can be put in danger of doing the wrong thing because we fail to see the whole picture of what the Torah wants. So, 
A few examples of what I learned from Rabbi Meir. He's a great example of someone, as I mentioned before, with a clear and strong hashkafa based on his understanding of Torah as he got from his Rav. Because of this, not in spite of this, he always talks about the separation of opinions is allowed, but the separation of hearts is forbidden. So, for example, everyone knows that uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister, was assassinated. And even before the assassination, he was asked if Prime Minister Rabin was a traitor because he wanted to give up what he thought would be land for peace. Ravaviner, who clearly opposed this idea, said, Has shalom. A traitor is somebody who intentionally tries to harm his people. He's trying to help his people. We disagree with what he's doing. We have to peacefully protest. We have to vote. We have to try to change the government. But to say he's a traitor? You can't say someone who's trying to help his people is a traitor. Satmur Hasidim have views on Israel that, let's just say, are the direct opposite of religious Zionism. And Rabbi obviously thinks that those particular ideas are wrong. Nevertheless, we're supposed to honor and respect them and their Rebbeim and to acknowledge the very good things that they do. So how about Nitzarei Karta? Those are the guys who are the most extreme, many of whom actively protest against the existence of Israel, some of whom even have done things like meet with the leaders of Iran. How do you do people like that? So, you've heard of Dan the Kavskut, judge favorably. Ravaviner teaches, we view them with pity. They're confused. Some of them are mentally ill. No normal person helps someone who wants to kill them. So why yell at them? Love them, love them. Feel bad for them. When we used to take students to the Israel Day Parade in New York, they always have a group of Nitzvah Karta who, you know, are protesting against the existence of the state. So I told the students, ignore them, feel bad, move on. Move on. How do we do left-wing Jews? Secular Jews. So, we fight those ideas which are bad, peacefully within the law, while simultaneously loving them and honoring them for the good they do and for having a special segula of being a member of Am Yisrael. It's not always easy. There was a story that uh, Rav Hanan Porat Zatzal, who has his own interesting story, he, when he was a student in Merkaz HaRav, when Rav Yehuda was the Rav Shashiva, they went to, there was some sort of discussion with the secular kibbutz. And they wanted a couple guys from Merkaz HaRav Cook to go, and he and someone else went. And they reported back to their Rav and said, that oh, was very nice, right? And at the end they said, well, you've told us what, what you can learn, what, what we can learn from you, the students at Merkaz HaRav. What do you think you can learn from us? And, they, and we said, we can't think of a thing we can learn from you. Rav Sihuda Cook was aghast. How can you say that? These people love the land of Israel. These people are Moser Nefesh, they're sacrificing themselves to build up the land, the state. Okay, they're secular, we don't like that they're secular, but look at the good things they're doing. How could you not praise the good things that they're doing? It's not always easy. Especially if you watch the news a lot. It's not always easy. But it's our obligation. We're supposed to love every Jew. 
Rav Kook has a very famous teaching that just like the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed due to Sinat Chinam, hate for no reason, the third will be rebuilt due to Avat Chinam, love for no other reason than this person is my fellow Jew. Reviving their following the views of Rav Yehuda holds it is absolutely forbidden to give up any part of Eretz Yisrael as it's been designed, designated by Hashem for Am Yisrael for eternity. It doesn't belong to any particular generation or any particular government. You can't do that. You have to settle anywhere as long as it's not on the private property of somebody else. At the same time, he teaches that one is forbidden to protest violently, to harm innocents in any way. And if police or soldiers are ordered to remove Jews from an area, it is forbidden to touch them to yell at them, to insult them, to fight. A few years ago, we'd already made Aliyah, part of a neighborhood called Nativa Vot in Elazar, in Gush Etzion, which is a neighboring to where we live, was ordered evacuated by the Israeli Supreme Court. Long, sad, crazy story. And there were people who arranged to be present during the evacuation in order to sit down on the site and peacefully protest the ruling. So I asked Rabbi Nair, should I go? And should I bring some of my kids, who at that point were, you know, were older? He said, I should do neither. Because he was afraid that even though all the leaders said this is supposed to be peaceful, that maybe there would be violence. And unfortunately, he was right. There's a story, by the way, that he tells of, again, of Rav Sihu, the cook, his Rav, that some of the students went to a a demonstration that got a little bit out of hand and they come back and they say that two of the boys were arrested and sitting in jail he has to do something so what do they do? they said they hit a policeman and he said they hit a policeman? they hit one of our policemen? let him sit in jail by the way he also held that way about harming innocent Arabs there's a story that he, he always, Rav Yehuda said, that the argument is not about whether this individual non-Jew should have rights in, in, in Israel and be treated nicely. Everyone, almost everyone says that. The disagreement is who owns the land. So when he saw kids from a, from a school being not nice with a clearly Arab worker in the area, he wrote a letter to the principal. Eventually it was published. Saying, you've got to teach your kids. You can't do that. You can't do that. But Vavina has taught me in the path of Rav Cook that our job is not simply to make ourselves and our families the best we can be, but our job is to strengthen all of Klai Yisrael. So, when we're trying to make decisions, he says, at times it's not even what's best for my own avodah, but it's what's best for elevating the entire nation. Now, of course, sometimes you can do both. For example, Rav Avinu never pressured me to make Aliyah, though he certainly encouraged it, feeling that it would be best for my family, but also best for Klai Yisrael, to be part of the continued revival on Israel and Eretz Israel. He gave a sure I heard and published an article which some agree with, some don't agree with, but I was told it's about my Rav, where he said it's in most cases, unless you're Rav Herschel Shachter, which he mentioned by name, it's better to be a regular Jew in Israel than a Rav outside of Israel. And I took that to heart, along with many other factors, when we finally decided again after 40 years of dreaming, it was time to make Aliyah. And when we finally made Aliyah, he called us shortly after to wish us Mazal Tov. Shortly before, it was during Operation Protective Edge, shortly before Hamas 
rocketed nearby the airport and we got to visit the safe room in Ben-Gurion. Welcome to Israel. Uh, so the timing was excellent. And of course, since all yeah, he's been available. So having a rock helps us make sure we're getting the complete complex mesh of Torah, not hypersensitive, focusing on one issue, keeping us balanced, keeping us focused. We also want to have a role model, someone we can aspire to be like, even if we know we're probably never going to get there. But now the word of caution. Having a Rav does not mean checking our brain at the door. It also does not mean substituting Hashem with the Rav. There have been cases of charismatic so-called rabbis who've done really terrible things, including rape, adultery, that they've justified their followers. Some of them have been in prison. There are cases of so-called rabbis or Kabbalists who promise miraculous cures, charge for Bechot Tfilot, say, don't go to chemotherapy, take these Tic Tacs instead and pay me more. There are a few rabbis who during the corona crisis said, don't get vaccinated. Rav Avinesh said, the rabbis aren't doctors. But the rabbis can tell you what the halakha is, listen to the majority of the highest level doctors. So even as we choose a Rav as a guy and as a role model, we must remember this does not mean blind obedience. And it does not mean forgetting who is in charge. We're not part of a cult. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in charge. One thing I've always admired about Rav, I've one of many things, is that he teaches people to think for themselves. An interesting example is during election time. Rav Avina tells students and others who he's voting for and why. But he also is emphatic, like the Khatam Sofer taught, elections are like a bait din. So every voter is like a dayan, which means every voter is obligated to do what's best for Am Yisrael and Medinat Yisrael, even if it's not best personally, and to vote accordingly. So I made Aliyah nine years ago, and I have been zochet to vote in five national elections. Long story for Israeli politics. Sometimes I voted like he voted. Sometimes I haven't. Which, of course, is exactly what he wants. Now, I'm in an unusual case in that I've never learned more than one day at a time in Rav Avinu's yeshiva. But I consider him very much my Rav and, and that I'm his Talmud. Over 28 years, hundreds of Svarim, hundreds of recorded Shreem, hundreds and hundreds of emails, phone calls, Shabbat Nesom and more, He's impacted my hashkafa and my life personally and professionally in tremendous ways. So the overall message with this case study is to encourage you to find a Rav with whom you're comfortable. And for those who are married or about to be married, a Rav as a couple with whom you're comfortable. They don't necessarily have to be world famous. They don't necessarily have to be a gadobador. Don't, don't be uh, nervous to reach out. You might get answered. But you want a Rav who's a genuine Tamil Chacham who understands you, who understands your situation, who helps you see a complete picture of Torah, who can help keep you balanced, grounded, part of Mesorah. A Rav who you can trust, who really cares about you, and who knows how to apply the Torah to your life, who can help you solve difficult problems, who can inspire you in your Avodat Hashem, in your Avat Yisrael, in your commitment to Am Yisrael. I'm fortunate to have such a Rav, and I hope that Kodesh Baruch Hu will bless each and one of you with the same. Chodesh Tov.